Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today on the podcast, we have Kevin Lane Derringer, a local author, teacher, and actor. He is the author of The Bard and the Bluegrass, Two Centuries of Shakespeare Performance in Lexington, Kentucky, and Murray Prescott, a star of some brilliancy. He has also written two plays regarding Miss Garter and Naked on Request. His acting career took him to New York's Broadway, where he played roles of Henrik in A Little Night Music, Jim in Miss Moffat with Betty Davis, Cornelius in Hello, Dolly, and many more. He is currently working on several plays and a volume of poetry. His memoir, Bad Sex in Kentucky, is set to be released in November of this year. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we invited you to talk to us a little bit about your new book release, but I'd like to start at the beginning before Kevin Lane Derringer the actor. When did you move to Lexington or were you born here? Oh, I am a native Kentuckian. I was born in Versailles. When I was about four, we moved to Lexington. Then we moved back to Woodford County. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents built a home there. And that was their home for the rest of their lives. And I went to school, started Catholic school in Lexington, then Catholic school in Versailles, then back to Catholic high school in Lexington, undergraduate at the University of Kentucky. All right. So now you were still living in Woodford County and commuting for Lexington Catholic? We did, which was weird. Everybody thought we were farm people. My dad was a college professor, but (laughs) he drove this funny old truck, so they used to tease us about being farm kids. And since my, I come from a long line of farmers, I didn't know why that was supposed to be an insult. Uh, though I think they intended it that way. <laughs> oh, you know, no. I was very lucky. I mean, I grew up in a very beautiful place. Yeah. And I miss my parents and I miss that home yeah. because it, it gave me an extraordinary experience growing up. Okay. So that experience growing up as a Catholic, was your family always Catholic? Or? Oh, no, it's, it's much more bizarre than that. <laughs> my parents were both converts to Catholicism. Oh, okay. Actually, I was baptized first, and I'm the youngest of oh. the three children. I was baptized when I was a month old, then my mother, mm-hmm. then my older brother and sister. And about 10 years later, my father converted mm-hmm. without any pressure. It was rather wonderful. But they'd been brought up, my parents had been brought up, sort of, mother was Southern Baptist and daddy was sort of whatever Christian church was nearby. Uh, church going, but yeah. not fussy about that, okay. so long as it was Protestant. Okay. But they, so it was very strange. We, I, so I was brought up Catholic, but with this strain of Southern Baptist rigidity. Okay. Not that the Catholic Church doesn't have its own rigidity. Of course, but, they uh, all do. <laughs> uh, well, it's the nature of organized religion. Yeah. yeah. So in your book, which is called Bad Sex in Kentucky, (laughs) (laughs) which is due out to be released soon, right? Yes, in November, right around Thanksgiving. So you talk about growing up Catholic and in Catholic environment through Mm -hmm. education and realizing that you are gay. When did you realize? It's funny. I, I grew up probably sometime well into my teens, I still thought I was going to get meet mm-hmm. the right woman and get married and have children mm-hmm. and live in a lovely house with a picket fence and yeah. all that thing, because that's just the only life that I had heard about. Yeah. And it was difficult when other people started to label me with names, ugly names, mm-hmm. and identified me with those names because they didn't understand them. I thought, well, that's not me. I'm not 
that. And uh, so at the time, I mean, growing up as a teenager at a Catholic school, you didn't really identify yourself as a gay man. Well, it was a different world. There were there were no gay role models anywhere. Uh, it wasn't even mentioned most of the time. And if it was mentioned, it was in a part of a dirty joke or a slur. Yeah. And or a reference to someone who was an outcast. And I didn't want to see myself as an outcast. So I kept thinking, well, that I'm not whatever it is they're saying I am. And it was a particular kind of cruelty. That's probably the hardest thing to get over is yeah. when someone else establishes an identity for you and they make it ugly. Yeah. I think that's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. When did you decide to come out? And Was that a natural thing for you or did you get any kind of pushback from your family or friends? Or? Well, I didn't come out to my parents till they, uh, till I was in my 50s, uh, just a couple of years before daddy died. Mm -hmm. I tried many times and my mother would cut me off. And actually when I did, they, uh -huh. I introduced the subject by saying, we're going to talk about what we all know, mm -hmm. but we just haven't mentioned yet. Yeah. And they were lovely, daddy mm -hmm. particularly. I mean, they, I, I had the best parents. I mean, well, you talk me. about that in your book a lot. Yeah. You know, there's a special connection. Of course, yeah. You, there's a special connection that you had with, with your family. It was a very loving family. We I were protected from a lot yes. of ugly things. Yes. Mother and daddy did not dredge up the mm -hmm. ugliness of the world in front of us. Yeah. And I rather like that, although might have been I might have been a stronger person earlier on if I had. I yeah. didn't have a lot of edge to me. Yeah. I do now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you were, I guess, taken out of that environment, that protective environment and going to college, can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? Well, well? high school had been, it, I was bullied in elementary school very mm -hmm. badly and got through it by, I prayed. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a good Catholic boy. I went. To, that was your outlet. I, every night I went to bed with the rosary and mm -hmm. I prayed the saints that whatever sorrow I was feeling would make me a better person. And, you know, the clouds would open and I would be assumed into heaven as a new saint, <laughs> uh, a presumptuous child. College, college is great because wherever you go to college, you meet a broader range of people. And people are also suddenly mature enough that they don't need to compartmentalize. Now, there was still a lot of really ugly homophobia, oddly enough, particularly in the theater department at, at the university. Really hateful. I, I was surprised. I thought I would be more at home there. And even there, I was cut out. I wasn't in the theater department because I was an English major. Okay. And that was part of the problem. They were all sneering at this English major who wanted to go on the stage. And this was in the, the 1960s? This was in 19... Uh, I graduated from high school in 1969. So okay. I started at UK in that fall. So right around um, the Vietnam era. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We did the marches. And I was on campus during the Kent State business when the the fire uh, the, yes uh, when the rotc building burned and mm -hmm. when the state police came in i was my brother and i were side by side and wow. gassed and knocked with billy clubs and Goodness. chased over to the bible college it was a strange time the same year that october it was the moratorium as it was called it was yeah. a march against the expansion of the war mm -hmm. and my father marched with us which wow. was great yeah yeah, so resistance was a family affair. <laughs> I, I grew up with, although I said I was protected, I, I certainly grew up about around people who were politically minded and very uh, socially minded. My parents were civil rights activists, okay. outspoken, mm -hmm. and spoke to us about it, um, never preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents never preached, but we discussed 
those things. Okay. And I'm grateful for that. It enabled me to be a good New Yorker later. Oh, well, speaking of New York, what what took you to your acting career? How did you get started as an actor? You were an English major at UK. Um, But I'd started doing plays when I was in high school as a way of being somebody other than myself, as a Mm -hmm. way of asserting myself in a positive manner Mm -hmm. in front of the people who hadn't been very nice to me. That's a lot more complicated probably than it really was. I think I enjoyed the applause. I was a good singer. I had a lot of high notes, and they were loud and on pitch. So that kind of pushed me into performing. And my aunts had been very active in community theater here. My great-grandfather had a theater down on Upper Street back at the beginning of the last century. So he actually met Sarah Bernhardt. I grew up hearing that. So I, I had this sort of theater thing going on in my head. And it was very fulfilling. I don't know that I was ever any good. I mean, I, I just had a career and it happened. And so when I went to UK, I was already doing summer stock and getting a lot of experience there. And I did some shows at the university, at the Guignol. And what, hope I um, had a good do you time. remember any kind of plays that you did at UK as a student? Or? I was Androcles and Androcles and the Lion. Okay. I, I learned my lines and I could be heard in the back row. I don't know <laughs> if I was any good other than that. And I, I looked puny, which the role called for. <laughs> And then they did a musical, and I'd gotten all kinds of backlash there because I did musicals in the summer, that that wasn't really the theater. Well, it paid, didn't it? (laughs) And so when UK did a musical, I thought, okay, I'll audition for this. And we did Boys from Syracuse. And I had a great time because I got to do what I was most comfortable with. Acting and singing. And singing. And I, I don't know. And... One thing led to another, and I thought, well, let's see if I can make a living. And I joined the union early on, and I got my first pre-Broadway show, a major flop, uh, about a month after I moved to New York. And a few years later, I did the Broadway thing, and I did a lot of national tours, a lot of regional theater. And I am a very, very proud recipient of an actor's equity pension. So (laughs) I had enough of a career that I... They, they yeah. pay me to stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you were in a lot of uh, plays. Can you name some of the plays that you did on Broadway? I, well, I did the revival of My Fair Lady in 1976, okay. and uh, playing a small role. And then I toured as Freddie in that for <laughs> on and off for 15 years. Also, all you, it took you globally. All over the United States. Mm-hmm. And then I did a two-year tour of the musical Secret Garden. That was the, mm-hmm. where my career ended, playing Daddy. And we were all over the United States and Japan. Mm -hmm. And I saved my money and I bought myself a home here in Kentucky. And I don't know quite what I was thinking. I thought it was going to be a rental. And it ended up being a great place to come back and forth to in my grandmother Mm -hmm. and then in my parents' last years. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful that I was able to do that. That's a bit of luck in my life that I got to spend time with them. That's good. So you were living in New York and and commuting back and forth. For the last 22 years in New York, I taught at a private boys' school there. I taught English. So um, that's another career that you took yourself Which I loved. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking about my high school Mm -hmm. teachers, and I had some really... Awful teachers. People yeah, who yeah. You mentioned you mentioned those in, in your book. I do. It's and, very interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of them were horrors, but th- I also had these great nuns and a couple of what were called lay teachers, uh, mm. which I won't make Horn the nuns. obvious joke. Uh, <laughs> yes, in the English department, and maybe that's why I ended up being an English major. Although I think that more has to do with my dad reading to me when I was growing up. We yeah. always loved words, but those English teachers. I was just thinking coming over here. They 
loved me and they let me love them. I had three years with a Latin teacher and I loved Latin, but he never said good morning. He never said, how are you? He never said good job. He just barked. And it wasn't a bad teacher in terms of getting the material across, but you didn't want to spend much time in a room with him. Yeah. But he these... wasn't able to make a connection. So when I became a teacher, I taught for four years at a co-ed boarding school, mm -hmm. Catholic boarding school up in Connecticut, then a number of years at a day schools in Manhattan. And one of the things that I hope I brought to my classroom is that I loved my students. I mean, I, I was considered a very tough teacher, but I really loved them. I mean, I really loved spending time with them. That's and I, that, so it made it a very happy career. I, I missed the classroom. Really? I, but I threw away every red pen I owned. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to grade another test. Oh, it's so hard to, when someone's written, worked on an essay and you Butchered. go through and you're going <laughs> about it. It's, you know, yeah. mean and not meant to be, but it just feels that way. Yeah, I just had a flashback to my, to yes, my high school I, days. Everyone <laughs> does. I mean, I, when I mention English teacher, people start cowering and worrying about where they're putting their apostrophes in front of me. I'm human too. Yeah, so when did you move back to Kentucky permanently? A little over two years ago. Oh, okay. And so it's not, not been too long? Not, not long at all, but not mm -hmm. a single regret. I love being back here. I miss the energy mm -hmm. of the city, and I miss going to the theater because I went to the theater yeah. two or three times a week would not be unusual. How was it balancing your acting career and being an English teacher? Oh, I didn't do the two at the same time. Oh, okay. I couldn't. I, I, they're both full-time careers. Of course. I, I, I've never been a part-time actor. Mm -hmm. It's either all or nothing. Yeah. Do they ever come watch you in your plays? or I, I was on, on the stage. Mm -hmm. Then I taught for four years. Then I went back on the stage for two and a half, three years. Then I said, that's it. I did do one concert after I started teaching, but I didn't tell my students much about it. No. <laughs> I just kind of snuck down and did it. But, <laughs> no, but they would occasionally find something online or in a theater world annual picture yeah. of me and they start giggling that they'd actually found out my other life. Your secret life. <laughs> yes, but of course, now with Facebook, they know everything. Of with course. this book coming out, they're going to know more about me than they ever wanted to know. <laughs> what was your favorite play that you did on the theater? That's that's a hard question, actually, because it is has it like to do... like asking your has, favorite child or something? It is, it, and it also has to do with the people who were in the show with me. Of course. I did a nine-month tour of My Fair Lady mm -hmm. with a company of actors who are still my family. They're my... Mm -hmm. I, most of my best friends come from that little group. Mm -hmm. And that was a long time ago. It was more than 40, year, 40 years ago. I loved playing Cornelius and Hello, Dolly. That was just fun because I got to be sort of an adult and it was a more of a leading role and I enjoyed that. Um, and Henrik and A Little Night Music because it's, it's Sondheim and when you sing Sondheim, you, you do feel like a really good actor. He makes you feel good. Well, I mean, you were doing it for a long time, so I'm sure somebody thought you were good and they came to and watch they you. They hired play. me. I'm very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> In your book, you mentioned that you're, a couple of your aunts wrote poetry. Did mm. they inspire, inspire your own poetry? Well, my, my aunts, as we say here in Kentucky, my aunts. Can you tell uh, that I'm not a native uh, Kentuckian? My aunts. Uh, they all inspired me somehow because they were all very loving. Mm -hmm. And here's this weird little creative child, kind of a nerd. And most of them uh, did not make a big deal about my nerdiness. They 
showed an interest in what I was doing. They talked to me about what I was reading. They talked to me about what they were reading. This is especially true with my Aunt Sue, okay. who was a major influence on my life and mm -hmm. one of the great figures in my life. So my father's older sister. Uh, well, he's the eldest, but he's one of his sisters. Yeah. But they were all kind of wonderful. But a number of them did write poetry, but they mostly wrote very sentimental mm -hmm. verse. And it was very sweet. And I loved, I have some of their poems and I, I love them treasure them. But my father wrote poetry, okay. much sparer mm -hmm. poetry, tense little pieces. Mm -hmm. And he would share those with me. And that meant a lot that he did that. Probably the uh, my cousin Dan, who's my Aunt Sue's eldest son, is a nationally known poet. He's actually quite wonderful. The stuff mm -hmm. I write doesn't come close to what he does. He's quite brilliant, always has been. But a lot of it actually came from teaching because I taught poetry writing for a long time. Okay. And I came up with a number of prompts for my students, things to let them feel comfortable with, particularly in a boys' school, mm -hmm. writing poetry. When I retired, I thought, well, okay, what can you do? So I've done quite a bit. So, I, um, so you said you were tired. You're not participating in any kind of local theater here in Lexington? Uh, well, actually, by union rules, I can't perform. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the union. Although uh, there is an excellent company in the summer, the Lexington Theater Company, which, I, and I did work with them. I, I'm sort of their historian at oh, the moment. Okay. I've been writing pieces for that go on medium.com about mm. their rehearsals and about their actors. And, oh, they are wonderful. Yeah. Yes, They bring in four professionals from New York and then the absolute cream of the crop from the various collegiate programs in musical theater mm. and do extraordinary work. I also was the dramaturg at Athens West, which is another very strong theater company here mm. for the importance of being earnest last year. Mm. And I had a great time doing that because mm. I got to be Mr. Know-it-all, which I'm really good <laughs> at. But I mean, I, I, I'm really good at research. Okay. And so anything you want to know about Oscar Wilde or the importance of being earnest, it's performance history, it's textual history, yeah. anything about it, stage performance history, I can tell you and probably will. So <laughs> in that sense, I'm involved in things here. So you've been writing plays and theatrical mm -hmm. biographies for a while, but you've decided to, that it's time to write your own memoir, mm -hmm. Bad Sex in Kentucky. So can you tell us about how that came about and why you decided that now is the time to, to write it? Oh, <laughs> my brother read an early draft of Bad Sex in Kentucky, and he's, one of the things he said, my brother's funny, he said, well, you can't publish it until the entire state of Kentucky is dead. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, <laughs> I didn't wait that long. Uh, my parents are gone. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure really what my parents would think with this about this much public honesty. Uh -huh. I hope it's honest, and it's certainly public. <laughs> and I'm, I am worried about what some of my family members will think, because mm -hmm. I, I haven't discussed all of this with all of them. Yeah. And I love them so much. I keep telling my family, mm -hmm. if you read this book and you think that I don't love my family, you didn't read this book. Mm -hmm. I my family is everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I was blessed but, oh, yes, just but, to read, you know, in advance um, a few chapters that you were uh, so kind to send to me. And it, that does come through just from the few you. chapters that you, you. you, that, you sent, that, definitely. That really um, is important. But I, f I really felt your truth in, in, those, in those words. So, A lot of these are stories that I've been telling mm -hmm. friends for a long time. And, and I hope in an amusing way. Mm -hmm. Even the ones that aren't very pleasant, mm -hmm. 
generally speaking, if you get a little distance from them and you're telling them at the right time, they're actually kind of funny. Yeah, they are. (laughs) But what else could happen to this poor Even the sad ones. (laughs) Some of them, I mean, there are a few that uh, that are deeply personal and very painful to write about. One of the things I did in the book is that people who are, that I did not think were kind to me, I don't call them by name. Mm -hmm. And I, my, my brother, uh, I don't know that I should quote him on a podcast, (laughs) but he, he was all for my, uh, he said, name the bitches. (laughs) But I, um, I told him, I said, that's not where I'm writing this. There's, there's nothing in this that's about settling scores or about payback. Mm -hmm. It's just about telling the story. And I realized that a memoir is so weird. I mean, it's all me, 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 me. And reading it and rereading it, particularly as we're going off to press, is actually rather difficult because I'm thinking, oh, Lord, that's just too much of me. But it's a it's a it's memoir. A memoir yeah. And I'm hoping that my experiences are the sorts of experiences that other people will say, well, something like that happened to me. I know, I know what you mean yeah. by that. And certainly one of the things that I care most about is fighting the human tendency to bully people. I mean, I do think it is kind of built into us that we look for ways to advance ourselves by announcing our superiority to someone else. We're all guilty of it one way or the other. And I ruminate on that quite a bit because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still fairly thin-skinned thanks to the way I have grown up. And I castigate myself for that quite often. Mm-hmm. I need to be a lot more forgiving. And uh, and I'm hoping this book is kind of that. What what it's also done, unfortunately, is dredge it all back up again. Because there it is, and I'm rereading it and rereading it. And I'm going, oh, Lord, what a whiner. Uh, uh, tomorrow is the reunion, my 50th high school reunion mm. is tomorrow. And for the first time, they're not having it at a private home or a hotel. It's back at the school. And it's not really a reunion. It's just the school's fundraiser. Yeah. And we're supposed to pay money at the door to go. And <laughs> I've never given money to the school for reasons that are apparent in my book. Mm-hmm. I have given time to the school. I have gone out and talked to them quite a bit about their LGBTQ students yes. and about anti-bullying. Mm-hmm. And I think I've had some effect. There are some wonderful people there who are working really hard to make it better. Yeah. But I'm still very uncomfortable going back in that building. And, Just because of the memories? And- oh, and it's changed. It's cleaner, and it's bigger, and it's brighter. I mean, it was a dingy hellhole when I was oh, there. No. <laughs> uh, well, it was, I, it was utilitarian yeah. and smelled it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can't. I, I mean, you can hear me laughing. I, I'm not bitter. I no. just find it amusing from a distance. And I'll be 68 years old. Was it cathartic for you to write your memories, even though like you had to dredge up all that um, pain? Well, it's not exactly as though those stories had died for me. But I have kept a journal all these years. I've been writing in every single day I've written in my journal since, oh, 1964, 63, somewhere in there. And it's all piled up. So I did go back and reread selections. And actually, that was the most painful thing, because I rarely have gone back and reread my journal. It just sits in a big cabinet in my house. It's all going to the UK archives when I'm dead. We've already signed the papers. Oh, wow. And um, not that anybody can read my handwriting, but you know, nobody reads cursive anymore. So Lord help us. But there it is. And rereading that and seeing it 
there was one section I rewrote just before we sent it off to the mm-hmm. text designer. I went back and I thought, I need to just go back and check the facts on this. So I went back and read again my entries from that time period. That that was painful because I was deeply hurt. I didn't realize it, but I was pretty suicidal. And I had not, if you'd asked me at 15, was I suicidal? I would have laughed at you. But when I read my journal, oh, Lord, it was dark, dark, dark. And I was pray, trying to pray it away. And I was listing all my faults and blaming myself. Well, I think a lot of kids at that age, they don't recognize the pain until it's... I used to tell my students, if you're 7th, 8th, ninth, and maybe even 10th grade, if you're happy, something's wrong. I mean, it's it's a miserable time for everybody. And that's one of the things I learned from teaching that helped me process whatever happened to me, is that even the kids who seem happy and everything's wonderful for me and I'm 13, they're probably going through some kind of pain as well. And and the people who bullied me, there's a reason why they bullied me. Yeah. There was some pain in their life that they needed me to mm-hmm. squash. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't squash me. I'm no. here. Oh, oh yes. I, and we're very am, happy about I am, that. <laughs> I am outrageously resilient. And that always amazes me. I'm just, it's the one thing I like about myself. Yeah. Well, hopefully somebody reading your book, like you said, can get that resilience bone out of it. Um, so I think, I think I'm not a china teacup. Yeah. I bounce. <laughs> <laughs> in your book, you tell a little story about your first day in, in preschool. Was it or kindergarten? Kindergarten, kindergarten, yeah. or yeah. kindergarten, as Kinder- we would have said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had a, a, a very tough teacher. Oh no, no, you know what? She really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, dear sister Rita Marie, may she rest in peace. I was at her grave last year, and I stood there and said, "Sorry." <laughs> about breaking your rosary. <laughs> about breaking her rosary. I was the baby in the family and somewhat coddled. I'd been a little sickly when I was 18 months old. I was this skinny little... I looked sickly. I think by that time I was pretty healthy. But my brother had gone off to kindergarten in glory the year before. And I actually think I was looking forward to it. But mother went back to work. So suddenly I had to go to school and mother wasn't going to be home. And I had to go to kindergarten. And I was four. And I knew that I got there the first day and discovered almost everybody I talked to was five. And I thought, this is not fair. Somebody has done that. I've got another year at home with mommy, you know. And, of course, if I would waited two months, I would have been five, too. But you don't do the math when you're four. And so I was pretty unhappy. I don't remember. I must have behaved badly a few times. I still have my little name tag. It's a little chirping bird with my name on it that the nun made. Wow, you keep everything, don't you? I do. And every grudge. Anyway, so I was there, and... I was trying really hard to be a good boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that had already been Drilled built in. in. Yes. Yeah. My sister, who was in the fourth grade, had a pop bead necklace. It was plastic beads that one popped into the other, and you could pop them apart and put oh, them back yes, together. Yes, I remember those. Yeah. Back, yeah. back and forth. And I'd been pulling them apart and putting them back together and pulling them apart and putting them back together, anything to you know keep busy hands. So there I am in school. It's Sister Rita Marie walks by me. Now, this poor nun probably had, what, 25 or 30 kids in her classroom of four- and five-year-olds? Mm. And she walked by, and, and she had the, the, those that order of nuns wore a very large rosary on their belt. Mm. And it would hang and swish by you as, as the nun went up and down. I reached over and I, not a malicious thought in my 
brain, I just thought, ooh, pop beads. <laughs> and I grabbed her large rosary and started popping it apart. Well, of course, she was appalled, and she locked me in the cloakroom, which I rather liked. It was quiet and had a slightly musty smell of dirty children, but it was, it, it was nice. But then she called the Monsignor, a rather frightening human being, who came in. I was so afraid of him that I hid under my desk. Now, that's not under the seat, but there was a book compartment under the seat, and I was hiding under that. It was about maybe seven inches at most, and somehow I got my scrawny little body shoved in there, and he was threatening to exorcise the demons from me. And being a good little Catholic boy with a mother who had converted from Southern Baptist, I had a very strong image of what Satan looked like. And it sure looked like the Monsignor to me. So he's talking about driving the demons out of me. My mother, sensible lady that she was, always said, Kevin, that never happened. That he would never have done that. We would have stopped him. And I said, Mother, it's one of my strongest memories. I know he said I will have to exorcise. He used that word and I, my ear picked yeah. that up. The demons from this child. Not a very kind way to treat no. a four-year-old. So I, I was expelled from kindergarten, went home and had sort of a nanny figure named Huggy who taught me how to read. And mm -hmm. so it all turned out quite jolly for me. Yeah. But poor sister Rita Marie turned out to be my second grade teacher as well. <laughs> and I, I always think, looking back, she must have been terrified when I was oh. walking in the door. Oh, no, here comes that <laughs> child with the demons in him again. But she told my mother, Kevin is a changed boy. And I, but she also told you my mother, to be more. fair to her, she told my, my mother used to hang out with nuns. And Sister Rita Marie sent, told my mother much, much later, she said, Mrs. Derringer, I, when I taught Kevin, I was having a really rough time myself. Oh. And, and I, I actually wrote her quite a long note just before she died. She was in the old nun's home. Mm -hmm. And she wrote me back and then died. <laughs> and I hope my letter had nothing to do with it. But as I said, I went to her grave and said, sorry. Sorry for breaking your rosaries. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciated you as a student later on, though. I, I was, a, well, second grade. I was a good little boy. Now that you're retired, would you like to go back to theater? And if so, what role would you like to take on? That question deserves a really awful answer, no. to tell you the truth. <laughs> no one's making any demands that I return, so it's not a, but if, a big if call you for had, it. What would your choice there, be? You know, my career did everything I wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. I had a lovely time. I played some parts that I was not suited for, and I squirmed when I did it. If people wanted to throw things, at least they didn't, and I'm grateful for that. And I played some parts that felt very comfortable, and I met some wonderful people. Now and then, I, I, I also have no memory left. I can't, rem I can't learn lines anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that disappeared maybe about three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't learn Yankee Doodle Dandy at this point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of old stuff up there, but the new stuff won't stick, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to put anybody through the hell that occurs when an actor can't learn his lines because I've worked with actors who couldn't learn their lines and it's it is so I mean it's it is the actor's nightmare that's what actors wake up screaming about yeah. is not knowing your lines but occasionally I'll see something there's a show called drowsy chaperone and mm -hmm. the man in the chair and I thought well, if they could write the script on something where I could read it, oh, I would love to play that because it's kind of me, the nerdy little guy listening to show tunes. The musical Titanic a few years ago, there was a telegraph operator brilliantly played by Marty Moran, who is a wonderful actor and also wrote a brilliant memoir, two of them actually. He's quite, quite brilliant. He, in many ways, inspired me to write, to write the piece that I wrote. 
And he played this telegraph operator on the Titanic. And I thought his, it's a warm, gentle, kind person. And I thought I could just play that. I would like to play that. That's that I can see that in me. But really, if I could memorize and really tear it up, I still want to play Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I had a series of dreams. Have you, have over, you played Hamlet? Oh, good Lord, no. Voice <laughs> <laughs> from Syracuse was as close to playing Shakespeare. I'm supposed to be a big Shakespearean expert, and I, I know a lot about the history of performance mm-hmm. and a lot about the text. Yeah. If you open any volume of Shakespeare on any page, I can give you two hours of perhaps not very interesting, but two hours of information. I know my Shakespeare. Yeah. But that um, was your first book, actually. It was um, about Shakespearean about performance. Here in Lexington. Uh, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. But I actually had a, a, over a series of weeks, had a series of dreams in which I played the entirety of Hamlet. I'd go to bed and dream another act. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually made a recording of the entire play, reading every part for my father for, birth, for his birthday first one year. Because he started me on Shakespeare. He had the Yale Shakespeare in the house, and he would read to us. But, yeah, I, I mean... Life regret, I never played Hamlet. And I don't think anybody out there was waiting for me to do it. But (laughs) as with anybody, any actor, male or female, who reads Hamlet, you find yourself in it. And that's that's the glory of Shakespeare. Uh, So, yeah, there's my pipe dream. And Uh if there's any laughter at anybody listening to this, hold it to yourself. No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Besides your memoir, are you working on... Any other projects currently? I have two or three new plays that I'm working on. There's always a poem going on somewhere. Mm-hmm. I have a another theatrical biography that's with an academic publisher. They're evaluating it. And, uh, academic publishing has gotten tougher in the last few yeah. years. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe I've that well has dried up on me and that I'm not going to get this one published. But I did enjoy researching and writing it. Mm-hmm. I also have two other theatrical biographies that I am working on. One, as one of my students said years ago, if, if they're dead, forgotten, and played Shakespeare, you'll probably write about them. <laughs> and it is right, as in most things, too. And there's a collection at UK that I've been helping to uh, catalog mm. in the archives. A woman who, whose name I won't mention, but she knew everybody in the theater of the early 20th century and had a great deal of scandal and carrying on in her own life, and including a wonderful murder. I mean, it's just fascinating stuff to read about. And I've already written three or 400 pages on that, and I have no idea where it's going. Um, but this is, this is what I do now. Yeah. Instead of grading papers, I create, create my own new mess. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep writing. I, it seems to be, yeah. yes, an obsession. Yeah. It's a good obsession. Well, yes, I hope so. Can I talk a little bit more about the book? If of I course, may? yes. I just, yes, I just want to mention that Bad Sex in Kentucky is mm-hmm. being published by Rabbit House Press, which okay. is a small boutique press out of Versailles, Kentucky, my yeah. hometown. A wonderful lady named Erin Chandler. And I was about ready to sign a contract with a different publisher. And I was hemming and hawing about a few things. And I, I knew, I didn't know Erin. We were Facebook friends, but I, I, and I had read her books, but, mm-hmm. and I knew she was around. So I just called her and asked, and she said, well, send, can I take a look? And I sent her a copy of the book. And I swear it was about two minutes later, she emailed me back, sign with us. I want yeah. this book. <laughs> 
And I said, I think you better finish it first and see if you really like it. She has been extraordinary. And it's been very exciting to meet someone with a love of literature and a love of publishing yeah. like that. And, and she wants it to be right. And I'm just really thrilled that, I, that, that I'm able to do it with her for sales publishing house. I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good that you got somebody that can appreciate what you wrote. Oh, I just use the term literature. She referred to my book as literature and I nearly <laughs> fell over. Good heavens, I don't write literature. Well, I write books. Well, that's the testimony of a publisher. So there you go. <laughs> it, it touched me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I hope someone else thinks so. Well, I'm sure they. I'm sure they will. Again, it's going to be released soon in in November. November. uh, Yes. And where can people purchase that copy? Uh, It'll be on Amazon, and it'll be available through Rabbit House Press online. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm hoping we're planning on it. It will be in shall we call them the better bookstores in Kentucky. (laughs) Of course, we'll have a copy at the library for people to check out. At the Kentucky Room, I should hope so as well. Yes, in the Kentucky Room with your other books. Yes, that nobody ever checks out. <laughs> my my first book, I gave the first copy to my mother. Uh-huh. My dad had passed away, but I, I gave it to mother and inscribed it to her. And after mother passed away, I found it in her living room with a paper napkin on page 13 where she stopped reading. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Take Thank care. you very, very much. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at l-e-x-p-u-b-l-i-b dot org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.